But here, God's word, Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, I, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. This command to the elders, you should shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Now, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not, not domineering over those in, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. Well, Holly can tell you I am not a big fan of the dentist. I apologize if you are a dentist in the room. It's nothing personal. I just think that going to the dentist is torture. It didn't always used to be that way. Back in California, I had a fantastic dentist. In fact, this dentist is brought up into conversation quite a bit in our household. And who brings up a dentist into conversation unless he is a fantastic dentist? Well, Dr. Huang was fantastic. He was gentle, he was kind, and he oversaw my teeth for the first 29 years of my life. But when we moved here, something changed. I decided I wasn't going to go to the dentist again. And hopefully you can see that not going to the dentist for 10 years was a horrible decision. And it was, but I had my reasons. If you're going to come up with me, I can tell you all the reasons why I didn't want to go to the dentist. I can tell you that when we first got here, we had a dentist appointment for Holly, and they charged us an enormous amount of money. And I said, I will never go to the dentist again if this is how much it costs. Uh, we also had another dentist who was kind of rude and, and, and rough, and you're like, man, I'm not going to that dentist. And, and then on top of that, there's the fact that my dentist was amazing. So, so I realized that I was just going to get let down. So why even try going to a dentist here if that dentist is not going to live up to my expectations? So I didn't go to the dentist for 10 years. Hopefully if I was going to go around the room and tell you my reasons, you would say they were all inadequate to keep me from going to, to have somebody oversee the health of my teeth. Because I paid dearly. I can tell you, 10 plus, or I, I forgot how many cavities, more than you could imagine over those 10 years of, of paying the price for, for not having somebody oversee my teeth. And you might say, well, didn't you brush? And I said, yes, I did brush. But here's the lesson. There's some things in life that we need additional oversight of for us to be healthy. Some things in life that we need additional oversight over for us to be healthy. I think we would all agree with that, but here's the question. Would we agree with it when it comes to our souls? Do we, do we agree that, that entrusting our souls to a group of individuals called the elders of the local church is, is for our good? I think for our first reaction to, to be able to entrust our souls to, to another group of individuals, our first reaction is to say, no way. Well, why would I ever want to do that? In fact, even the mention of entrusting our souls to, to a group of individuals called the elders of the local church, it, it causes many of us to, to shudder. But, but why is that? 
But why does it come to, to a passage like this that we have so much difficulty reading? Because after all, this is not how God designed it to be. God designed the local church to, to be a place in which we can thrive. A place that we can find involvement in. And a place in which we can have people who, who watch over us in love. Who, who shepherd and direct us and point us to the beauty of who Jesus is. Like this is what Peter is going to show us this morning. That there's something good about us entrusting our souls over to a group of individuals who, who, whose whole purpose is to shepherd us, is to love us, is to point us to the beauty of who Jesus is. And the way they're going to do that this morning is this group of individuals by Peter is going to be called to live lives that show forth the beauty of who Jesus is. So the rest of the congregation can look at them and then be able to imitate them. But we first have to deal with the baggage, right? Because there's hesitancy for us to come to a passage. And, and what we notice, we, we not only have personal baggage that we bring along, but there's cultural baggage associated with it as well. There's, there's a whole bunch of baggage that makes us come to a text like this and say, no way. So let's first deal with the personal baggage. Just like I had personal baggage coming to the dentist, I think many of us, maybe maybe you had a great experience, I've seen it, many people, they, they come from a previous church, and, and there was a great pastor there, and a group of elders that mentored them and shaped them, some even people lived with this group of pastors, and it was just an amazing experience, and, and their thought is, well, I'm just going to get let down again. The next church isn't going to be good as the past church, so therefore I'm not even going to entrust myself to these people. I just know I'm going to get let down, so I shouldn't do it. Others of you, it's the exact opposite experience. You've been hurt. You've been let down by a group of pastors or elders. So much so that, that you have promised yourself that you will never entrust your soul to a group of individuals ever again. And if that's you in this room, I, man, I feel you. Man, I've been there. I've been let down by a group of elders and pastors. I've been manipulated. I've been taken advantage of. So much so that, that even the word elders brings up a little PTSD in my soul. So, so if you're in this room and you've experienced a horrible experience by a group of men, I, I apologize for that. And I also say, man, I, I fear you. Others of you, it's not by personal experience. You just heard the stories. And you turn on the news these days and you, you're just in, 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 in just almost like every week we, we see another pastor, a group of elders failed their people. And you just turn on the news and you see a list of individuals, a list that is very long. From Ted Haggard to, to Rabbi Zacharias to Bill Hybel to Jerry Falwell Jr. to Mark Driscoll to Hillsong's Brian Houston and Carl Lentz. To even this week or this past week of James McDonald, again, the list, the list is long. And it's almost like we're almost expecting who is going to be the next pastor who, who falls into sin. So I think there's good reason for us to look at a text and have a little apprehension when we come to a passage like this. Because, because when we turn on the news, we see pastors bully their congregation. We see pastors who were having affairs and abandoning their family. So yes, there's a lot of personal baggage that, that we bring to the table when it comes to a passage like this. And we haven't even mentioned the cultural baggage. 
Just, just think about the cultural baggage we bring. We, we live in a society in which it says autonomy is best. And, and, and you hear that and you're thinking, well, how, how can we follow a passage like this if the culture is yelling at us, autonomy is the greatest thing you can have? The individual, that they don't find their identity any longer. What we're told is they find their identity not in the group they find themselves in, but they find their identity by what their inner thoughts are, their own worldview. In fact, there's a philosopher from, from Canada in which he writes this, Charles Taylor. He talks about having our identity conformed with this idea of, of our inner thoughts and our own worldview. So therefore, for us to press against that worldview is actually hindering somebody's psyche or, or hindering their identity to be formed. So therefore, we're almost uh, beginning to define our identity by nonconformity to the outside world. Charles Taylor, he writes this, he says, in our culture, it is so important that we find and live out one's own life as against surrendering to conformity with the model imposed on us from the outside by society or previous generations or religious and political authority. Christopher Walken would agree with that when she would say this, the modern paradigm of heroism in our culture is defining our own identity in the teeth of, of them who want to stifle you and make you conform. So therefore, words that say be subject to any group of people is not just a hindrance to, to who we are. No, it's a dangerous words in our society. So we bring this cultural baggage and we bring this personal baggage. And, and what are we called to do when we come to a passion that calls us to be subject to a group of individuals who, who lead the local church? Well, first of all, I think we have to identify the baggage. The only way I'm able to deal with it is if I identify that I'm coming to this passage with, with, with a hindrance, with some baggage that's holding me back from obeying it. So secondly, i got to pray that God would, would allow me to process it. So therefore, I can lay it down and be able to obey the commands we see in the scriptures. Because just like me in the dentist, yes, there's real pain and real baggage that I bring to the dentist's office, but yet... If I keep that, they keep that baggage there, and, it, and if it hinders me from giving oversight over my teeth to a dentist, it's causing me greater harm. And the same thing is true when it comes to the church. If my personal baggage and cultural baggage is hindering me from obeying this passage. What I'm going to see is real hurt and real pain that's keeping me, but it's just going to cause greater damage. Because what we're going to find in this passage is God did not create us for autonomy. But he created us to not to live for ourselves, but to, to live for other people within the community called the local church. And I'm going to find my greatest good as I submit myself to a group of men whose, whose yes purpose is sometimes to, to, to encourage me, to weep alongside me in my pain. Other times it's going to be correction. Other times it's going to be a time in which we can rejoice in what God has, has, has given you in life. Maybe it's a new baby in which we come alongside you and we rejoice and celebrate what God is doing in your own life. Other times we're going to nudge you. To, to point you in the direction in which we feel God is moving our church so that we can fulfill God's purposes for our lives. Lastly, what Peter is going to tell us this morning is that we're called to be able to, to, to shepherd the flock among us by living exemplary lives. 
So as we look at a passage, here, here's our goal, that we come to this passage and say, yes, there's something good amongst this passage, because what we see in the very beginning is, what does he tell us? It tells us in verses 1 and 2. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Peter's writing as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So what do we see at the very beginning? We see what, what good elders, what, what is their role to be? They're called to shepherd the flock that is among them. And that's what this group of individuals is called to do. They're called to shepherd those who are, are, are in the flock. But what does it mean for us to be able to shepherd the flock? I think our first understanding as an elder is, first of all, he's an under-shepherd. And what I mean by that is that, that there's the main shepherd, or the chief shepherd, as Peter writes in verse 4. The chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. So as under-shepherds, their whole goal as elders is to mimic the chief shepherd. And what does the chief shepherd do? As we look at what they're called to mimic, that means that elders are called to sacrificially give of themselves to protect and care for the flock under their, their sight. They're called to sacrificially give of themselves to, to care and protect the flock that God has entrusted with them. So what does it mean for us to protect the flock? What does it mean for us to shepherd? First of all, we feed the, the, the flock. And how do we feed the flock? We, we feed them by pointing them to the beauty of who Jesus is in the Holy Scriptures. We proclaim the gospel to you. And that's what we do each and every week. We come here proclaiming and feeding you the word of God because we understand this is where life is found. This is our greatest treasure because it points us to our greatest treasure, Jesus Christ. Secondly, sometimes we protect you from, your, from, from, from false teaching, from other people. Other times we protect you from yourself. We come alongside those stubborn sheep in what we call church discipline to, to protect them from harming other people and harming themselves. Other times, again, we encourage the sheep. We, 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 we shepherd them to the direction, again, what God we, we feel God is calling us to do as a church. We pray over the sheep. We want to be a church, a group of men who, who constantly are in prayer over their people's lives. In fact, we're going to do something new in coming up in our newsletter. We're going to have four families in which we go through each and every week. We're going to make a habit on Monday at, at a certain amount of time. I think at 5 o'clock on Monday, every 5 o'clock on Monday, we want you to pray over this one specific family of our church each and every week. So that we're able to make it through each and every family throughout the year. And what a blessing, Right? For us to be able to pray over our people's lives as a congregation at the same time each week, not only are we creating a habit of going to the throne room, of asking God to bless us, to watch over our people, but one family gets the whole church to pray over their lives one, that, that one week. What a special opportunity. So we want to constantly be in prayer. We're, we're dedicated to gently directing the sheep again to pursue the things we believe God is calling them to do. Again, the emphasis at the end is to, to live exemplary lives so the congregation can follow. But as we look at this command, Peter comes. The question we ask is, why is he having to command this group to even shepherd the flock in the first place? Is that not a good question to ask? Why is he asking it? And the, and the reason is it's because of persecution. Remember, he, Peter just got done in chapter 4 talking about this fiery trial. And this fiery trial was persecution that was coming 
And as he begins to explain this fiery trial and, and persecution, the question on the table that they were asking is, is why is God allowing these evildoers to persecute his church while he's doing nothing to them and he's making his church members pay? Seems backwards. Peter's answer is to his church at the end of chapter 4. He says judgment begins with the household of God. And what he's doing is he's loosely quoting from Ezekiel chapter 9. As we look in Ezekiel chapter 9, what we see is judgment begins in the house of God, specifically for the elders of the temple. So what Peter is saying, he's saying when persecution comes, this refining fire amongst God's people, it begins and shows up at the household of the, of the leaders of the church first. And if you want to scatter the flock, you attack the shepherds. Peter understanding that, the, that these, these shepherds, these elders, these pastors, these leaders of the church are going to endure persecution. There's a temptation there to say, hey, we're, we're not doing this. But what does he say? He says, shepherd the flock in that. You, you, you lead your people even when it comes at a cost to you. Even when it comes at a cost to your family. He says, you lead your people so that they can cable. They're able to see that you treasure Christ more than anything else, even life itself. Yes, it's going to come at a cost, he says. But he says, don't you back down. He says, I need you to shepherd your people. And live such a way that they can see clearly from your life that you believe Jesus Christ is your effort. Because you're willing to give it all up to lead your people to him. You, you see what he's trying to say? He's a shepherd the flock among you. And then he's going to give them four commands on how they're called to live and how they're called to lead and how they're called to shepherd. As we look at these four different reasons, what, what we notice is that this is a call to, this is how we're all called to live. But yet, especially for the leaders of the church, we're called to live in such a way that this is exemplary in their lives. So what does he say at the first part? Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock that God is among you, exercising oversight. Catch it. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Peter calls the elders to exercise oversight over the flock, not as one who's forced to do so, but one who shepherds the flock willingly. And again, he understands persecution's coming. So, so he's saying, don't be co co coerced into this task. See the joy of what it looks like to shepherd your people. That you should do so willingly. That you get the privilege to be part of God's church. To be able to shepherd his people. That's a joy. See, see what he's trying to do? This is, this is true for all of us, is it not? Are we not all called to, to joyfully serve the Lord and see the privilege of us coming under his command and being able to live for his glory alone? But especially true for the elders. In fact, we, we even go back to Paul's word. He said that when, when you give, don't give as somebody who's, who's coerced to give. Don't give this, this in, in this coercion, but, but give freely because God loves a cheerful giver. And what do we see in that? We see it's not enough just to serve. God cares about the heart in the service just as much. 
So he says, I, I need you when you serve me to do so willingly to see the joy of what it looks like to serve your heavenly father. And he gives this command to the elders. He says, first, elders, when you shepherd, do so joyfully, not go first, but joyfully. And then secondly, he calls the elders to, to lead not out of his desire to puff themselves up, but rather to shepherd, uh, a, 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 a way to shepherd out of the heart that wants to serve other people. Catch what he says in verse 2. Shepherd the flock that God is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but catch it, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but, but eagerly. You know, and what we need to understand is selfishness doesn't look good on any believer's life, and specifically it doesn't look good on the leaders of the church's lives. So, so he says, I need you shepherds, these, these elders, I need you to shepherd in such a way that to not only do so willingly, but you do so in a way in which you don't do it for selfish gain. That again, you, you mimic the cheap shepherd in which he did nothing out of selfish ambition. But he considered others more important than himself. So therefore, he's calling these elders to do nothing out of selfish gain. To don't use church leadership as a way to, to manipulate everything for your own good. So don't do it for, for the sake of money. Don't do it for the sake of, of, of the platform. Don't do it for the sake to puff yourself up. He says, no, you, you need to do it in such a way that you're serving other people for their good and their gain alone. Be one who is eagerly serving other people. That you would be able to, to serve Christ's bride out of desire not to serve yourself, but to serve the body. In fact, as Peter is writing this, I imagine him thinking back to that conversation with James and Andrew who, who, in which they're talking to Jesus at the time in, in Mark chapter 10. You remember what they said? James and Andrew, they come, they say, Jesus, we, we need something from you. Jesus says, what, what, what do you need me to do? James and Andrew said, we, we need you to reserve that spot on your right and your left when we get into the kingdom that those seats will be reserved for us. And notice what they're doing. James and Andrew, they're manipulating Jesus for their own gain. And how many times have we seen elders do the same? That they want to lead the church to puff their own feathers up. That they want to lead the church because they want a church program that they just so desperately want to happen. So they, they think if they get into this leadership position, they can have the vote to make it happen. Some elders, they get into the position because they just want to fire a staff or hire a staff. It's all for selfish gain. And yet he's saying, no, you don't need to do that. In fact, notice Jesus' response to James and Andrew in Mark chapter 10. He tells him. He says, you, you don't know what you're even asking. He says, you, you, are you going to drink the same cup that I drink and be baptized in the same baptism that I am baptized? And shockingly, what was their answer? They say, yes, we can have it. And Jesus says, yes, you will drink of my cup. And you will be baptized in the same baptism I'm going. But he says, it's not up to me to be able to reserve those seats. But it's up to the Heavenly Father. But notice what he's telling these men as he tells them that they have to drink of this cup. And be baptized in the same baptism he's having. He's looking to these men and he's telling them the pathway to leadership in the church is walking the pathway of suffering before the pathway to glory. 
He's saying, you're going to mimic the chief shepherd. And which the chief shepherd, his, his whole life was walking down this pathway of suffering before it led to his glory. In fact, I'm reminded of John Piper. He had this Desiring God conference for pastors. One of the pastors who got up, who had the sermon series, he said this. He said, pastors, how do you die for the sake of caring for your sheep? Like Jesus did. How, how do you die? In fact, he goes on to say this line, which is so powerful. He says, the cross must be an essential element in our definition of vocational fulfillment. The cross, it must be an essential element in every definition of vocational fulfillment. He's saying, leaders, you must embrace the cross. The cross was suffering. The cross was shame. The cross was a symbol of death. He's saying, leaders, if you're going to lead, it's going to come at a great cost. You must embrace suffering if you ever desire to lead Christ's church. Is it a joy? Absolutely. But it comes at a cost. And it's first this cost, this road of suffering. He said, elders, you must embrace it. In fact, every Christian is called to pick up the cross daily and follow him. So, so we need to redefine what it looks like to be a believer in the American church. But yes, it is the pathway to suffering first. And there's joy in the suffering. That's what Peter's been trying to get across in these last five chapters. That when we look at a biblical idea of suffering, it's always, it's always coupled with joy without the scriptures. In fact, when you look at Jesus, his whole life is united to this idea of suffering. So if I'm going to live like Christ, I must embrace that road of suffering as well. Thirdly, he called the others to, to not serve in this domineering fashion, but elders who are called to lead by example. Look at what verse 3 says. Not, not domineering over those in your charge. But what does he say next? He says, by, by living, by being examples to the flock. Peter says, don't, don't bully your people. The way you're going to lead them is you're going to woo them over to Christ by the way you live. You live in such a way that you stir their affections upon the beauty of who Jesus is. That that's how we're called to lead. We're not called to coerce or beat you over the head. We're called to live in such a way that it moves you over and say, that's, that's, I, want, I want to live like them because they have a passion for Jesus. They love Jesus and it's contagious. Does that mean we're perfect? No. But even when we fail, we're called to lead in such a way that we ask for forgiveness and repentance. We apologize. It's what David Carson says, that we, we need to live in this in such a way that we have this consistent spirituality. Eugene Peterson would say this, long obedience in the same direction. Which D.A. Carson would go on to say that, that whatever ought to be seen as appropriate conduct in Christians must be supremely seen in their leaders. And that sadly has not been the truth for many churches. 
And I even think in the context of this passage, in which what, what, what Paul is calling to live exemplary lives, it's in the face of persecution. So, so what he's really telling his people, <coughs> he's telling his people that I, I need you to live in such a way Sorry, I'm choking. <laughs> All better. He, he's calling them so to live in an exemplary manner within the within the persecution coming. He's saying, live in such a way that you are the first people that people that embraces radical obedience, even when persecution is going to be the result. Again, live in such a way that your congregation can see that you treasure Christ above all. Do you see what he's saying? And, and yet, even in the face of non-persecution, elders should live the same way. You, you should be able to clearly see from our lives that we love Jesus and we're passionate about his kingdom. So he gives us these three commands, and then he ends with this idea, a command for all of us. He says, likewise, verse 5. Well, but first he says in verse 4, the reward, why, why should elders do this? Because there's coming a day in which they will be able to see the treasure. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 5, then he goes into command. He says, likewise, all of us should be able to do this. You who are younger, be subject. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourself. It's an interesting word in the Greek. In fact, he only uses it kind of in this passage. There's different words for clothe, but this one specifically speaks of putting on a servant's kind of apron. So if you're going to clothe yourself with this servant's apron, people should be able to look at you for the way you're living and say, hey, you're a person that longs to serve other people. But then he says, be humble. Why should we be humble? Because God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. You ever watch football? You understand those guys in line, they're big fellows. Offensive, defensive line, these guys weigh 300 plus pounds. But they have one mantra. If they're going to have success on the football field, they must stay low. No matter how big they are, no matter how strong they are, if they want to successfully block the person below them, they must get lower than that person they're blocking. They must stay low. So if they're, if they're going to get high, they're going to get knocked on their back because that other person is going to take them down. If they get too high, they're going to be knocked out of the play. They get too high, they're, they're, gonna be, they're, they're not even going to matter to the play. So he, he calls football players, if you're going to coach and call your players to get low as you block. And yet the same command is what the church is called to do. If we want to have success, we must stay low too. You want to have a successful marriage? Stay low. Do you want to have long-lasting relationship within the body of Christ? You must stay low. If you want to look like Jesus in your life, you must stay low. Be humble. In fact, every problem we see within conflict within people, one person refused to stay low. They got too high and their pride took over. He says, stay low. In fact, he gives you that warning. God opposes the proud. 
He opposes. He stands up against. It's like him being Reggie White and me being a little, little guy. And God's just going to oppose you if, you if you get too arrogant. And you see it throughout the scriptures. So he calls his people, be humble. And if we understand the gospel message, we should be. It's all by grace. Now, nothing we bring to the table. It's all what he brought on our behalf. Stay low. And is that not what we want from our leaders especially? So much easier to entrust you, your soul to a group of people who are shepherding over you if they stay low as well. But hopefully you see the beauty in this passage. I get it. Some of us will have to wrestle with it. You got a lot of baggage when it comes to a passage like this. I get it. I, I've been there. But Peter calls his church. He said, elders, I need you. I need you to shepherd. Congregation, I need you to entrust. Why? Because this is where we find our greatest gain. Having people who, who oversee your sin. Those times in which you, you, you can't see your own sin. We lovingly correct you and point you to the beauty of Jesus is. Those times in which you're struggling, you're going through a hard time, that's when we come alongside you and hug you and love you and pray with you. So that we all together, not better than you, we're with you in this. That we would all be able to see the glory of who Jesus is. Because one day soon, he's coming back for his church. And it's going to be a glorious day. God, I'm thankful. And each and every week, we, we are so thankful that you have disclosed yourself in the Holy Scriptures. We're, we're so thankful that you have chosen to reveal who you are, and how we're called to live, and the beauty of grace. So this morning, we confess we can't do this on our own. God, we need your Holy Spirit to fill us. God, I pray for the people in this room who, who are still angry and hurt by your church. God, I pray that your comfort would be able to comfort them. God, would you remind them that you are able to understand exactly what they are going through? Because when you came to this earth, the elders of the Jewish church, they rejected you. God, I pray for those who are hurting, that, that you would restore them. That you would heal their hearts. That you would comfort them and allow them to see the beauty of the local church again. God, we, we want to obey all that, that you have given us in the scriptures. So God, even in those hard passages that we would submit to you, that you would give us the strength as us as elders to have wisdom and have grace and have patience be marked by humility that we would lead the congregation well. For the congregation Lord, stir in their hearts a passion for your name's sake. Let them see the beauty of what it looks like to be the family of God. That we get to experience the universal church and the only place we experience it is through the local church. God, be with your, with your people. 
Again, that we would leave this place encouraged to go out and live for you. God, we need you. We need you. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.